0: Morning.
1: light of the east is also
0: supported by eastern christian publications where you can find the prayers of the catholic byzantine daily office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com a broadband network for you to learn more about the eastern catholic churches that's easternchristianpublications.com.
1: publications.com glory to jesus christ welcome to light of the east i'm father thomas lawyer your host I can't believe it. I don't know if you can either, but this happens often. I can't believe that today we're celebrating in the Byzantine liturgical calendar, the Sunday of Zacchaeus. Now, just last Sunday, it was the Sunday after Theophany. Now, that represents the last part of, well, technically not the very last part. The last part is in February 2nd, the Feast of Christ's Encounter in the Temple with Simeon or the Presentation of the Lord in the Temple with Simeon. But aside from that, last Sunday, the Sunday after Theophany, was the Sunday that, in a sense, concludes what was the incarnational season that began on Christmas Day. When our Lord God, the infinite God, the uncontainable God, condescended, humiliated himself, allowed himself to be contained in a finite human body, in a finite cave, in a finite manger, yet remaining God. And from that point until just last week was an unfolding of successive levels of that humiliation by Christ. So that's what was so amazing about the nativity, not just that it's about a babe in a manger and all that sweet and and beautiful sentimental stuff, which is okay. I mean, that's, that's part of it. It's a beautiful part of it. Very charming, very beautiful, very inspiring, but it's only a part of it. We tend to linger at that. What happens is the church, through its liturgy and iconography, takes us beyond that. And it tries to keep our focus looking forward into what this is really all about. So the feast of the Nativity then rolls into, in the Byzantine calendar, the feast of the circumcision of our Lord on January 1st, which was also a feast day in the Latin Rite Church. It was changed, January 1st was then changed to a feast of the Virgin Mary. But originally it was also east and west, the fees of the Circumcision of our Lord, which is another process in his lowering, his descending, in order for us to ascend. Because he submitted himself to his own laws. He didn't need those laws. God made the laws. He made them for human beings, for sinners. But he submitted himself to that law. Although he was not a sinner, he took on human nature, but yet he was God. And then we come to his baptism the ultimate immersion into the lowest part on the earth's surface. It was the River Jordan, which flows into the Dead Sea. It's dead because it's in such a low spot on the earth's surface, and it doesn't drain out, so nothing grows there. It's all full of salt and minerals and so on. But he chose that area to immerse himself in the waters of baptism so that we could be baptized. And so we call this feast day of his baptism, we call it the theophany. It's also a manifestation of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the West, it's the manifestation of three wise men. In the East, it's three persons of the Trinity. But they're tied together, as so often happens, the East and West arriving at the same basic principle, the same basic point, but by different ways. What ties them together is the principle of revelation, of manifestation, of showing forth. The showing forth of God, who, in fact, loved us so much that he shows forth His love to the point of stooping, of condescending, of lowering herself, becoming a baby, being circumcised, being baptized, immersed in the waters. Although he is not a sinner, we are the sinners. But we could not be baptized unless Christ was baptized because we're baptized into his baptism. So this successive steps of this humiliation, this descending of God out of this infinite love for us is for our ascending we actually participate in Christ's birth, circumcision, and his baptism. Mystically, we actually move with him through those things so that we can then move upward. We can ascend with him to heaven. And that'll happen in a few weeks. We're getting that little distant echo in the first of the pre-Lenten themes. That's right, pre-Lenten themes, sort of warming up to Lent already. My goodness, we just experienced last Sunday, the end of Christ's manifestation, basically the very much part of that whole Christmas season. As I mentioned, you can actually stretch it into February 2nd. That's really the final event of Christ being shown forth. He's shown to Simeon in the temple. But the heart of it really ended last week with the Sunday after Theophany. In other words, it's the post-festive days of Christ's baptism, of Epiphany, or as we call it, Theophany in the Byzantine Church. So that bumped right up against now this first little echo of what will be the Lenten period leading to Christ's death and resurrection. Here we just had him born and baptized. He's just starting out. And now we're already moving on to the end of his earthly life. And that happens with this first little echo called the Sunday of Zacchaeus because it's a theme of desire. Remember, Zacchaeus was a man of small stature. He did not have many friends because he was a tax collector and tax collectors were hated because they used to cheat people, you know, stiff people, we might call it today. But he was not happy like many people today. They have all the worldly pleasures and materialism and so on, but still are not happy. So he was desiring. He was curious. He heard about this Christ. So he climbs up a tree because he was small in stature. He sees Christ coming. Christ sees him and in front of everybody, much to the scandal of everybody Christ says to him, I want to come to your house tonight. And Zacchaeus is just amazed, and so is the crowd. The crowd is scandalized. He's amazed. He's touched. And of course, he becomes a convert to Christ. So it's the theme of yearning for Christ, understanding what our fundamental yearning is and how to then strip ourselves of all other false desires And prepare ourselves through asceticism, which will happen during Lent, to actually become a true follower of Christ. And boy, oh, boy, if that's not something that's needed in our world today—true lights, true Christians—that's one thing I think this past year, the year 2020, gave us. It gave us 2020 vision. I think about the world, about where everybody is at, about ourselves, and surely there is a need a call for light in the darkness, for much more authentic Christianity, certainly much more authentic Catholicism, East or West. And speaking of authentic witnesses and those who sought to satisfy, because first of all, they recognize their one true fundamental desire, and that was for Christ. We have this week in the Byzantine liturgical calendar, a rich week of ascetics, of monastics. Monastics are the ones that recognized what their true desire was, and they were so serious about that, they left everything else, went out to the deserts. Many of them become solitary. Most of the time, they lived in community or came together at times in community, but there were a lot of solitary monks too. They went out there because they wanted an authentic witness. Well, we call it white martyrdom. They almost regretted not being able to shed their blood for Christ. That's how serious they were about Christ. It's how serious they were about their faith. They, in a sense, wanted to make that dramatic witness. And once the blood persecution of Christians was diminishing, these serious Christians still wanted to have that martyrdom. They knew that the world was not their true home. They did not want worldliness. They wanted Christ. And so they engaged in what we call white martyrdom and the monks monasticism basically was given to the world by the eastern churches because the monasticism developed in the deserts around egypt and then eventually in the sinai area and so on there was little precedent for that in the old testament with people like saint john the baptist who lived in the desert the essene community which was part of the jewish community they were in a community near the dead sea very strict observance of Judaism. So there was a, a precedent for this desert living, this monasticism, but of course it comes to its full flowering in the Christian era, starting about the third century. In fact, one of the first ones to really start monasticism as we know it was called St. Anthony, St. Anthony the Great. Anthony was an Egyptian. He was born in about the year 250. After the death of his rich and noble parents, he shared his inherited possessions with his sister, who was still in her minority, made sure that she was cared for. He gave away half of his inheritance to the poor, and at the age of 20, consecrated himself to the life of asceticism that he had desired from childhood. Now, isn't that interesting? From childhood, he wanted this. And he went after it at a young age, young man, 20. It wasn't just about, what kind of career can I have so I can make money, have a good life? I mean, there's nothing wrong with career, of course, but here's someone who knew very early on what his real desire was, and he pursued it. At first, he lived near his own village, but then in order to escape the disturbance of men, went off into the desert on the shores of the Red Sea, where he spent 20 years as a hermit, in company with no one but God, in unceasing prayer, pondering, and contemplation, patiently undergoing inexpressible demonic temptations. Oh, yeah. They went to escape, not the challenge of Christianity, they actually wanted to escape the distractions of it and actually went into the real authentic encounter of Christianity, of good versus evil. When we come back, we're gonna talk more about this rich week of monastics in the Byzantine liturgical calendar. I'm Father Thomas Loyal on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion
0: and to tell the story of the Eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support in order to keep light of the east on the air you can make a donation now by going to byzantinecatholic.com that's byzantinecatholic.com and then donate securely using any major credit card with your help we can keep light of the east's illumination bright no secret that Father Loya and other speakers from the Tabor Life Institute are available to speak at your parish or group on marriage and family topics seen through the lens of St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Other topics include Eastern Christian Spirituality, You're, You're listening to Father Thomas Loyan on
1: Light of the East.
0: You are listening to the Choirs of Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Church under the direction of Timothy Woods in Homer Glen, Illinois. This is the music you hear on Light of the East and is sung during the Sacred Liturgy at Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish. Order online at byzantinecatholic.com. All we ask is a donation of $15 or more, which includes shipping and handling, to Annunciation Parish for each Theosis CD. Send a check made out to Annunciation Parish at 14610 Wilcook Road. Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. And may God grant you.
1: Welcome back to Light of the East. We're going to be good monks this week. And it's a good preparation for what's going to happen during Lent. As I mentioned, we're getting the first little distant echo of the oncoming season of Lent. Seems so quick after the Christmas season. Because today is the Sunday of Zacchaeus. That's the gospel reading in the Byzantine calendar. And it starts to prepare us for recognizing our desire. And then we see the examples of these monks recognizing that desire and pursued it in a very radical way. You know, monasticism, as St. John Paul II said, is the reference point for all the baptized. That's right. Everything really is measured by monasticism. In fact, the health of a church is measured by its monasticism. And monasticism began to flourish, as I mentioned, starting in the 3rd century with St. Anthony the Great, and we're going to read a little bit more about him. His fame spread through the whole world, and around him gathered many disciples who he, by word and example, placed on the path of salvation. In 85 years of ascetical life, he went only twice to Alexandria. The first time to seek martyrdom during a time of persecution of the church, and the second at the invitation of St. Athanasius to refute the Aryan's slanderous allegations that he too was a follower of the Aryan heresy. You see, even though he was practicing white martyrdom, dying in a sense, mystically, dying to himself, rising to his better self, he still went into Alexandria because he heard there was a persecution and figured, well, I'm going to go in there and be one of them, one of the martyrs, support my brother Christians. He departed this life at the age of 105, leaving behind a whole army of disciples and followers. And although Anthony was unlettered, he was, as a counselor and teacher, one of the most learned men of his age, as also was St. Athanasius the Great. When some Hellenic philosophers tried to test him with literary learning, Anthony shamed them with the question, which is older, the understanding or the book? And which of these is the source of the other? The shame philosophers dispersed, for they saw that they had only book learning without understanding, while Anthony had understanding. That's a good example for us today. When people challenge us about the Bible, they claim the Catholics don't obey the Bible. And and they'll start quoting chapter and verse to us about what the Bible says and how we don't do it and we're wrong or we do something that's not in the Bible, etc. Well, you can ask them like Anthony did, which comes first, the Bible or the church that gave us the Bible? Well, this is the church that gave us the Bible. So we do things in the church that may not be explicit in the Bible. They don't have to be. They're implicit. They're not contradictory to the Bible, but they're sacred traditions. The Bible itself even says, follow the traditions that you have learned have been handed down to you. And that's what the church does. Bible came later. Now, Anthony was a man who attained perfection so far as man is able on earth. Here was an educator of educators, a teacher of teachers, who for a whole 85 years perfected himself and only thus was able to perfect many others. Full of years and great works, Anthony entered into rest in the Lord in the year 356 AD. So you see, this monasticism that we know of it today is started in this latter part of the third century with people like Anthony. Now, St. Anthony also taught this. He said, learn to desire humility, for that will cover all your sins. All sin is hateful to God, but the most hateful of all is pride of heart. Pride of heart. Do not consider yourself learned or wise, or all your toil will be lost and your ship will arrive empty at the shore. If you have great power, threaten no man with death, knowing that according to nature you are also subject to death and that each soul takes off its body as its final clothing. In Byzantium, there was a strange and instructive custom at the coronation of the emperor in St. Sophia's. That's the great church, uh, St. Sophia or Hagia Sophia. This was that when the patriarch placed the crown on the emperor's head, he at the same time placed in his hand a silk purse filled with grave dust that the emperor might be mindful of his death. Flee all pride and be humble, says St. Anthony of the desert. And these, these men were, they, they were incredibly humble. And the stories, I highly recommend you're reading the stories. There's books like The Sayings of the Desert Fathers, The Philokalia. Read up on these stories. They're fascinating. They're like quick meditations, little anecdotes of the example of these ascetics and their wisdom. And they are, as I mentioned, the reference point for us today. They wrote many, many areas of our liturgical life, our divine office because they were very inspired men, very holy men, and they could articulate, and they set down for us, in a sense, a meditation, a contemplation on theology, on revelation, on the Bible, on Jesus Christ. These contemplations, these, in a sense, mystical, intellectual interactions with the events of the Scripture, with God and theology— these become, in the Byzantine church especially, what we call dogmatic hymns. In other words, they're like as if you're thinking about meditating on, for instance, the birth of Christ or his baptism or his death and resurrection. Like, how do you articulate? It? How do you see it integrated with the whole of Scripture, New Testament, Old Testament? How do you see it in the liturgy? How do we see it in life? These meditations written by these monks were very, very integrated. They sort of sewed together all this imagery. They noted paradoxes. They noted similarities. They, they, they were poetic. They were theological. They're just fascinating. They're, it's like going on a retreat when you read the dogmatic hymns of the church written by these great monks. We look at another monk. There's, this week, we actually are going to celebrate Macarius, Maximus the Confessor, and another one, called Euthemius, also St. Anthony the Great, also St. Athanasius the Great. There's St. Anthony the Great, and there's St. Athanasius the Great, and they were friends. In fact, Athanasius wrote a book about St. Anthony, and St. Athanasius was famous for his refutation of the Arian heresy. Let's look at St. Euthemius for a moment. His feast day comes up on January 20th in the Byzantine liturgical calendar. He was born in Armenian town of Melitene near the River Euphrates. Now that's in what is today modern-day Turkey. That today is in modern-day Iraq, the Tigris-Euphrates River. It was in 377. Again, he was of noble and eminent parents. He was only son. His mother Dionysia had prayed for child and had a heavenly vision concerning his birth. He lived in asceticism from his youth. At first. In the vicinity of his town. But then after a visit to Jerusalem at the age of 29, he lived in the wilderness of Pharaoh between Jerusalem and Jericho. I've been, I've been there. I've been through there. It's a great place for desert monasticism. He filled his days and nights with prayer and meditation, contemplation and physical toil, and many disciples gathered around him. He went off into the desert in the first week of the great fast and remained there in silence and meditation on God until before Easter. During his lifetime, a great monastery grew up near his cave, which was for centuries as full of monks as a hive of bees. His last command was that there would be loving hospitality to guests in the monastery and that its gates should never be closed. He entered into rest at the age of 97. Now, the patriarch Anastasius of Jerusalem was at his funeral, in fact, and the patriarch waited the entire day while a great mass of people gave the saint the last kiss, and only in the evening he was able to finish the funeral. Imagine that. The patriarch was that respectful of this monk that he waited all day into the evening to do the kiss, the final farewell kiss. It's a custom in the Byzantine funeral to go past the casket. We had the casket open in church. And to give a final farewell, you can kiss the body or just acknowledge it while the cantor sings these beautiful, very moving hymns of farewell. Well, that's what happened with the patriarch and Euthemius. On the seventh day after his death, Euthymius appeared to his disciple, Domitian, in light and joy, and St. Euthymius was a true son of light. He entered into rest in the year 473 AD. You see, a little bit later, a little bit after Anthony, but we say that these are the monks that were essentially born from the work of St. Anthony of the desert. Many fouled him and took up monasticism. And basically in Eastern monasticism, there isn't what we know in the West as religious orders. When monasticism spread to the West by people like St. Benedict, St. John Cassian, they took the Eastern style of monasticism, but then it was developed into other directions and more levels until you had what was called religious orders and then friars and associates and so on. And in the East though, monasticism just stayed monasticism. You didn't really codify in terms of different orders. However, practically speaking, monasteries grew up around particular great spiritual masters like Euthemius and St. Anthony. So in a sense, you, you had not necessarily orders, but you did have monks, monastics, gathering around a particular spiritual emphasis or style or charism of that particular monk or abbot or leader of the monastery so you did have something similar just in the west it, it developed with greater complexity until you have all the religious orders that we have today monasticism is the reference point for all the baptized even married people in fact you know what marriage and monasticism are actually two sides of the same coin they're two sides to love spousally to give of oneself to another as gift to keep Christ as first and foremost in your lives and to live a life of making a gift of self by dying to self monasticism is the reference point for all of us thanks for listening i'm father thomas loya on light of the east News from around the world as it happens. Religious liberty, immigration, prayer, plus daily reports from the White House, Capitol Hill, and Rome. Get the Catholic news perspective on the things that impact your life on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.